So we've seen this situation where they initially were enthusiastic about rebuilding the temple as God's people. And uh, then a month later, it's, they've become a little bit discouraged again. And so God comes again to them with words of encouragement. So this is really all about encouragement. And it's a great theme and it's an important task for us to be encouraged. And if we can maybe go through the situation a little bit and look at God's answer to them. And then I want to apply that to ourselves in our own lives and kind of, uh, in I hope, a a right and in a a biblical way, be spiritual uh, in applying this story to our own situation as we uh, are building uh, in the Lord's kingdom, as we are serving God, in other words, in our lives. You see, the problem was that after a month of doing the work, they looked at what they've done. They looked at the temple that they were saying that they were building and they said, this is rubbish. It's rotten. It's not going to be anything like the old temple, Solomon's temple. And that was a very glorious and a very grand temple. It's filled with gold and silver and incredible intricacy and it cost millions upon millions of pounds in current days uh, uh, coinage but this new temple that they were building seemed just hopeless God says you know um, who is left of you that saw the house in its former glory and he says in in verse 3 and 4 how does it look to you now does it not seem like nothing that is exactly what was happening. They were comparing it with the old temple. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the wealth. They didn't have the will, even the political will, to rebuild this temple. And it was just a kind of fading memory. And what they were doing seemed rubbish in comparison. And it seemed embarrassing to be building a temple like this for God. And it was, it was going to be hopeless. And so they were discouraged really discouraged to give up and to stop and think what's the point of going on so we have this great this brilliant answer from god to his people now i know it's a different situation from our own we're not building uh, physical temples today we're doing the lord's work uh, in his kingdom spiritually but nonetheless we find god's brilliant answer to them and i hope you'll find that it will apply to ourselves particularly if we are feeling spiritually discouraged in our lives and feeling like they, we have nothing really to offer and nothing to, everything's a bit dull and plain and ordinary in our lives. Well, God, by the very fact that he intervenes in their situation, encourages them. He says, look, I know what you're thinking. You see, it's God who makes, takes the initiative here. It's not them. It's God who uh, speaks through Haggai, the prophet, as he would do, and uh, He wants to speak not only to the prophet, to the king, but also to the people. He wants everyone, as as we see, as he did in the first chapter, to know. He says, look, I know what you're thinking. You know, it's God who says uh, these words about the temple looking like nothing. He knows. He says, look, don't worry about that. I know what you're thinking, and I know the discouragement that you have. Don't worry about that, he says. And he encourages them simply Uh, with this prophetic message, this sovereign knowledge that he has of their grumbles or of their complaints or of their discouragement and struggles. This morning at Barnton Baptist Church, 
uh, was preaching on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together. And it's very similar, where uh, God says, look, I know that you're downcast and discouraged. Don't, don't think that I don't know these things, he says. And the Bible is full of that uh, uh, revelation and that knowledge of, of God speaking to us in our need. And so he goes on, having encouraged them uh, with his knowledge, to give them then a great words of encouragement as well, to give them a positive frame of mind. Be strong, he says. Some of the best words in the Bible. And in fact, he says that three times. Be strong, he says to the priest. Be strong, he says to the king. Be strong, he says to the people. For I am with you. Work hard, he says. I'm not discouraged. I, I don't think this is a rubbish temple that you're building. And uh, uh, he encourages them with his presence. I'm with you. You know, there's nothing else ultimately that's more important than God's presence with them as they're building this temple. And he does something very important. Sometimes we might not recognize it in our own kind of 21st century Western thinking, but he uses very specific type of language with them. He uses covenantal language that they would have known all about. They would have understood, you know. It wasn't just a kind of uh, slap on the back and a few kind of hearty words of encouragement. He was speaking deep-seated, strong, covenantal Old Testament language to them. They would have known exactly that he was speaking in a way that was uh, uh, tremendously significant and important for them. You know, he says, "Ah, be strong. I am with you. This is what I covenanted when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. These are all well-known God phrases that were used again and again for the people, uh, his people in the Old Testament. Uh, Language of relationship, language of closeness, language of love. And they would have immediately said, yeah, we know that language. We remember the story of uh, them coming out of Egypt and the promises of God and the words that he said. And uh, these are words he's applying to us. We are still his people. He still uh, wants to encourage us with these great words. Words he spoke to Joshua. Words he spoke to Moses. Words he spoke to Israel. Words that were repeated at the Feast of Tabernacles. Words that were um, just imbibed in their thinking. They soaked into their spiritual beings. And he reminds them of these great words. Tremendous encouragement to them as they felt a bit kind of isolated and hopeless and a bit rubbish as they were doing God's work. But more than that, again, he shares with them his plans. That's a great sign, isn't it, for them? He shares with them his purposes and his plans. He takes them into his confidence, in other words. You know, if someone's important to us, I think one sign would be that we would share with them our important plans for the future, you know. We wouldn't necessarily just go out onto the street and do that and share it with someone we've never met before. Hey, by the way, I plan to get married in six months. I haven't told anyone, but, you know, we wouldn't do that. It it would tend to be with someone that we uh, would confide in, someone that we valued. And so God does this great uh, psychological thing with them to build them up and to encourage them. He says, he points forward to great days. He says, this temple that you're building, it's a great temple, he says. It's actually going to be greater 
It says in verse 9, the glory of the present house is going to be greater than the glory of the former house. And that's after he's saying that he, in a little while he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and uh, the desired all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory and this place I will grant great peace. Promises, a future, plans, great plans, fantastic plans that he has. And he's including them in this, that uh, his resources will be focused on what he is going to do. And, you know, he says something, but he says, the silver and the gold are mine anyway. So, you know, he says, I'm not really worried about having a temple of silver and gold. That's not what I regard as being really glorious because, well, they belong to me anyway. It's looking forward. It's looking forward to something I believe very spiritual. There is a bit of debate about what this passage exactly means. Uh, But in my own understanding and through reading other commentators, there is no doubt to me that he's pointing forward to the greater glory of Jesus Christ and the work that he would do. Because remember, it was in this temple that they were building that Jesus spoke. It was in this temple that Jesus that they were building here that the curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom so that the glory of God and the access to God was there and his his presence spilled out and it's connecting the temple that they were building with the Christ who was to be the great uh, revelation of God among his people the Emmanuel figure God with his people and spreading it if I can broaden it a little bit more to the whole New Testament church in which we as God's people are described and I'll go on and say that a little bit about that in a minute as God's temple in which his spirit dwells so he he gives hints certainly it wouldn't have been necessarily terribly clear to them but they were encouraged to know that God had a purpose God had a plan and they were involved in that now can I just broaden it a little bit more to ourselves but more practically because there is uh, clearly in our Christian lives an ongoing problem of discouragement Maybe particularly in these days when our churches are small and there's not many Christians and uh, nobody seems to believe and uh, our Christian faith is ridiculed and rubbished and uh, we wonder where God is and his power and what's happened. And uh, we hear of God's work in the past and it seems glorious and it seems tremendous and, you know, we look at the work we're doing. It seems rubbish in comparison. And our Christianity seems hopeless and weak and poor. And we can be greatly discouraged by that. We can often be greatly discouraged by the amount of effort and and work that is needed in the gospel to work in the gospel in Edinburgh. To build a church with Christ's help. Who can be overcome, can be tremendously lonely as Christians and and as leaders, but also just as a people uh, together. We can be discouraged by other people, by their lack of faith or by their words or by their rebuke or by their lack of passion for Christ. Lots of things can discourage us. But particularly in our Christian lives, when we feel that uh, we have lost 
something that maybe we had or that we wanted and we've never seemed to have. We've lost the passion and the power and uh, the sense of God's presence and his glory in our lives. And I wonder if you, can, you feel like that and, and I wonder if that is your experience. Well, can we take God's word to this people and apply them to us in our lives? It's great that we also can be assured that God says to us this evening, I know, I know. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the burden bearer. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, does know how we feel and is aware of our encouragement and knows when we are overwhelmed by a sense of our own failure or our own lack of uh, um, a sense of being worthwhile in our Christian lives. It's a great thing when friends say to us, I know, I know what you've been going through. I understand, but sometimes they don't. But very often they will do, and it's great to have a friend who knows and understands what we're going through. And that is a very important aspect of our uh, relationship with Christ Jesus. He knows and he does understand. He understands our youthfulness. He understands our lack of comprehension. He understands our sense of ordinariness, our failure sometimes, our weakness, our lack of feelings to him. He understands. He knows these things. He's a great psychologist, the great psychiatrist, the great counselor. And so the encouragement for us is to go to him and recognize that and seek him and look for him. Not only does uh, he know, but he encourages us to. It's such an important task. Such an important task in this Christian community. You may not feel you have a significant role to play. Maybe you feel you're unimportant in the church. But let me tell you, if you are an encourager, that is one of the greatest roles that you can ever play in the Christian life. Such an important task to be an encourager. Such an important task. It's so significant. You know, not just to walk away and not be aware of the needs of those round about you. Such an important task in the workplace, isn't it? For some of you employers, it's a great gift as an employer to be able to encourage your employees. Sports people, encouragement on the sports field, tremendously important. Haranguing is easy, but it's so often counterproductive. So God encourages so often in Scripture, and we often have the picture of him as something else. But he is the great encourager to us. And he uses the same covenantal language with us in our lives where he says, be strong. Be strong and work. That's what he wants us to do as Christians. We may feel that our spiritual work is insignificant and unimportant and our Christian lives are insignificant. But he says, go, be strong in my strength, reliance on me and my spirit. 
know my presence and my promises. Have that strong mental attitude which isn't going to give up and work. Steal ourselves to serve him. Even if we come mentally to the place where we say, if everyone else in this universe is against Jesus Christ and isn't a Christian, I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to believe and move forward because his encouragement is to be strong and to work. Remind ourselves of whose we are. Remind ourselves of the value of being uh, saved by grace and the privilege of serving him because he has changed and transformed our lives. That's one of the big things, actually, that came for me, came out of the debate yesterday. That was more and more and more significant in words and uh, argument and debate and uh, cleverness and uh, all these things is a transformed life. That's going to have much more power for people. It's going to have much more effect when people say that our lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Not that we can beat them in an argument. Not that we can philosophically uh, just uh, wipe uh, the floor with them. Because that might just humiliate them. But if we've been transformed by grace, we've been touched, we're humbled, we're servants, we are aware that he has gifted us something we couldn't do ourselves. Be strong, he says, and work. And that is that kind, it's not like a worldly encouragement to say, keep going, chin up, uh, you can do it. It's not that kind of, which is maybe a kind of hollow encouragement sometimes. It's just, there's nothing much behind it. We just say, go on, keep going. You'll be okay. It's not like that. With us, it's an encouragement that is real because he says, I am with you. That's why we can be strong. And we should really put that in big letters. I am with you. As a Christian, Jesus Christ is with us, you know, to strengthen us and to keep us going. It's the whole Emmanuel concept of Jesus with us, that when we come to Christ, that he indwells us and he lives with us. So it's not vain and it's not hopeless. And uh, we needn't be weak, but we can be strong and we can work for Christ because he is with us. And uh, the encouragement is to us all. That's a, I think that's a great thing here. He says, be strong you know, as I said, he repeats it three times to Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, he says, uh, to Zerubbabel. Uh, and also, he says, be strong uh, to the people. And that's great. He wants all the people of God in Haggai's time to hear and recognize and respond to his encouragement. And that is because the rebuilding of the temple was going to have to be teamwork between all of them. There's a very strong and important concept of communality, community, and God's people being together. And that is very linked, very closely linked with encouragement. Loneliness very often goes with discouragement, being alone, struggling on our own. And that's why the local church, the community of believers, the people of God together, uh, hear the voice of God together and minister and elders and people together respond to be encouraged together by God's word and we move forward together and we're seeking to serve God together 
as a community of believers here in St. Columbus, in the middle of Edinburgh, although we come from all over the city, we work together to hear God's voice and to serve God, young and old, married and single, children and adults. And we're going to work hard together to do that together. And seek that encouragement of not only hearing God's word together and not being afraid as we uh, learn from God's word together, but as we encourage each other together. You know, we have lost this week the greatest encourager there was in St. Columbus. That is something we must recognize. There was no one who encouraged us more than Archie Boyd. There was no one who was more absolutely wholeheartedly behind you young people. He loved you and he prayed for you and he cared for you and he knew your names and you loved him. And in the tribute, I'm going to say that on Tuesday, that it wasn't me or it wasn't anyone else at all, but Archie himself who wanted to be called Archie by you all. He didn't want to be called the principal. He didn't want to be called Mr. Boyd. He wanted to be known as Archie you people right from day one and that whole spirit epitomized what he was and who he was as part of uh, God's people among us and we've lost that and I'm asking who's going to take his place who's going to be the encourager we can all stand on the sidelines and criticize we can all be discouragers it's the easiest thing in the world no gift is required whatsoever to be a discourager. It comes absolutely naturally. It comes as naturally as breathing. But to be an encourager. To put ourselves in the place of service. To put ourselves before others. In uh, a recognition of what we have by grace. Is the greatest gift we can have. And God gives that encouragement to us all. So let us be encouragers for and to one another. Because we have been saved by grace. We've been gifted salvation. It is the most great thing. Uh, so he encourages, I know I encourage, and he finishes. I think we are encouraged to know as well that he, he says, I plan here for the people. And that is something that we recognize ourselves and have experienced ourselves in uh, this New Testament age in which uh, we live in John chapter uh, 1. And verse 14, we have these great words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So there's this link between that Old Testament glory uh, of the temple, the previous temple, and this greater glory, which is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, the Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies with God's presence among his people. But here we have Jesus Christ, the greater glory uh, of which this new temple was going to kind of be linked into in one way or another, either through Jesus being in it or through the temple being, uh, curtain being rent from top to bottom or simply as he speaks of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and us participating in, having and knowing that greater glory ourselves. Do you know that you yourselves, he says, are God's temple? 
and that God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple, he says. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Then 2 Corinthians 6. For we are the temple of the living God. As he has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They will be my people. Covenantal language, straight from the Old Testament, applying to ourselves as believers. Ephesians 2.21, to give us that picture of the temple building. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You two, all of us, God's spirit living among us. We are part of that greater temple, as it were. Part of that greater glory where the Spirit of God lives in us as a people. Not when we come to church. It's not that we come to church and the the Holy Spirit lives in us and then we go away and he's away again. That's not what it means. It means that as God's people there is a spiritual unity. Wherever we are, yes, when we worship together, of course. But throughout all our lives and everything that we are, both individually and corporately. We're to grow and to build and to mature and uh, to uh, serve together as we have this glory of God in our hearts. Don't be a teetering spectator on the outside of this great work of God. You're asked to accept Jesus and accept the privilege of our sins being forgiven and of our partnership with him in this great gospel work. And the great thing of this temple, this New Testament work that uh, is focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it is a place of peace. It's a work of peace. I will grant peace, he says, declares the sovereign Lord. That is the whole of the kingdom principle uh, encapsulated in that uh, prophetic word that he has come to bring peace. I don't have time uh, because there's more here uh, about maybe the second coming as well where he shakes the nations not just in his first coming but in his second coming. We know Jesus Christ is coming back again where peace ultimately will be our experience, eternal and glorious peace. We know that still things are not as they will be but we know in our hearts the peace of God, the forgiveness of God, nobody else can offer you that peace and offer you that forgiveness and again can I just finish with this uh, again it's just something that's been in my mind since yesterday um, I keep wanting to call him Christopher Biggins but it's Christopher Hitchens uh, Christopher Hitchens the, uh, the atheist who was arguing yesterday uh, towards the end of his argument said something about the atonement about Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. And he spoke about that as being the most unjust thing ever. He knew very much about it. He spoke intelligently and um, and knowledgeably about the theology of the cross. And he was absolutely right in saying that uh, Christ was our atoning sacrifice. He died in our place. He he died because and paid the price for our sins because we couldn't do so. And he said that was the most unjust act ever because it was taking away our responsibility. It was taking our responsibility to uh, atone, uh, put right our own wrongs and make ourselves right. Obviously not with God because he doesn't believe in God. But I thought a lot about that yesterday. 
and uh, wondered about it. And it could, could only be the case that it's unjust if there was a way in which we could redeem ourselves. It's not unjust for God to do this on our behalf when we simply can't do it ourselves. It's not unjust for him as the judge to choose to take the punishment for our sins when it's something we can't do. We are powerless. It would be terrible. It would be unjust for him to say, make yourself right with me if we didn't, if, as, if, because we don't have the power so to do. We don't have the ability because we're spiritually separated from him and we are dead in our sins. We needed his salvation. It's not unjust, but it merges, it fuses justice and grace and love. His love for us to want us to be redeemed. And his justice that the price must be paid for our, our shortcomings met on the cross. It's not unjust. It's a way of peace. It's the only way of peace. It's the kingdom principle. Much was said yesterday about the sword and Jesus bringing the sword. But Jesus clearly makes known that he has come with the gospel of peace to work peace give us peace with himself and to live in peace with one another and to live in peace as Christians very important uh, reality also his way is peace may we know that peace and may this congregation reflect that peace and may we live with that peace in the world in which we uh, are living and may our hearts be transformed by that peace that only he can give us if you're discouraged tonight, can I point you to Jesus and to his words and to his purposes and to his plans? And if you're not a Christian tonight, can I point you to Jesus and to his uh, unbelievable love for you, his inexplicably deep love for you, the fact that he has worked a salvation for you and has died in, the place, uh, in your place. Calvary. And if you're encouraged tonight, then share it with others. And let them know about your encouragement. You know? Share it. And uh, thank God for it. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer briefly. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would bless um, your word to us. We ask that you would encourage us. We thank you that this amazing reality of the sovereign God of the universe bowing down in such tender and uh, intimate ways to encourage his Old Testament people is something that is magnified a, a million or infinitely in the Christ who came from heaven to not just encourage us with his words and his teaching but to redeem us by his outstanding uh, work on the cross, his death and resurrection, his ascension to God's right hand. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that we are asked by grace to know transformed hearts, to re rely on you, to have a new heart, and to then serve you with joy and hope and anticipation and uh, with an ongoing uh, relationship with you. So help us, God, we pray. And give us thankful hearts for each other. And remind us that uh, our time here is often very short. And our opportunities to serve you and to say sweet, good things to each other are few. 
and that we have this task of being encouragers together. And as some are taken from our midst, remind us of the privilege of stepping up to the mark and taking up that place. And may we deal in grace with one another, forgiving much and uh, always pointing the sharp uh, eye of criticism to our own hearts and never to others. Lord God, help us, we pray. Guide us and keep us and protect us for Jesus' sake. Amen.